are tuned into CFCR 90.5 FM. It's time for the nerdy news. It's Punch Radio, and we have a good mixtape of good stuff for you today. Uh, Dave and I are going to talk about uh, some Nicholas Ruffin Wending stuff, and we'll hear from Brennan, and we'll hear from Craig and Hank. Uh, yeah, there's a new show. Craig mentioned it last week that there's this Copenhagen Cowboy by Nicholas and we didn't know about it. And it was weird because we were simultaneously re-watching Too Old to Die Young. Um, so yeah, the serendipity of that seemed too good to be true. So we thought we better discuss this. So I have not seen Copenhagen Cowboy, but Dave, you binged it. And I did. What, what are your impressions? Well, I guess maybe just I'll start by saying how weird it is that this is a Netflix six episode series and you know it's right up my alley this guy's one of my favorite directors uh re-watching re too old to die young was i i was blown away how much of it i had forgotten about and how great it was and the people at netflix are not trying very hard to make sure that i get to see this six episode series i had to type the letters c-o-p and maybe the e of Copenhagen before it even showed up as a possibility. Yeah, that's and it weird. had a really trashy looking thumbnail too. So I don't know if maybe this is something that they've financed and then decided that they're going to bury it. But you know, it's it's similar in style to the things that we've we've enjoyed from him before, going back to drive and only god forgives and too old to die young i think he had another feature in there that we didn't we didn't really like that much but you know stylistically um we talked about this when we were watching too old to die young together that uh, it kind of feels like reading a comic book or a graphic novel and maybe that's the ed brubaker influence in too old to die young but it got us talking about how sometimes when we read a graphic novel we're reading it because we want to talk about it on this show or we're reading it because we have a little bit of leisure time to read and we want to finish it and we read it way too fast. That's and that true. the best graphic novels are the ones that have good enough art that they force you to slow down and spend three or four minutes on the same page really looking at what that illustrator did with the story. And that's what Refn's series are like he has way too little plot for the amount of time that he's putting on the screen like 13 hours in the case of too old to die young and five hours or so in the case of copenhagen cowboy there's not enough plot in there to fill that time so what's filling that time are these beautiful costuming and set designs these long shots of characters sometimes just showing off wardrobe and showing off set and it, it just forces you to take a lot of time with what you're watching, which is a, a great thing to have right now, because I feel like, you know, there was so much good TV in 2022. We all kind of felt like, man, I got to get through this stuff. And that's a terrible attitude to have. So that's one thing without saying anything about the plot or the characters that is really interesting about this series. I guess I would just very quickly say that it's kind of like, Kind of like a superhero story, actually. It's another like good versus evil story, um, but it's set in the backdrop of like uh, sex trafficking and 
the the drug trade, but always with giant swine farms lurking in the background. You're never very far away from the swine in Copenhagen Cowboy. Okay, that's odd. Okay, I want to build on something that you were just talking about, and that is like the, the speed, because he's very slow. He definitely takes his time, and it is like reading a comic where you're isolated on a panel. Like it really is filmmaking panel by panel. Yeah. And for sure, Ruffin has like the style over substance thing. But depending on who's writing it, sometimes the substance is still there. And I think that's the case with Too Old to Die Young. And to take it a little bit further, and maybe it's pretentious, uh, but in this particular plot line, I think slowing it right down and making the viewer watch it as slowly as we do, it becomes voyeuristic. And it makes you as the viewer complicit in the crimes that are happening. Because there's a lot that goes on that like people let happen. They do nothing about it. And it sort of like makes you part of that same gang and, and you feel guilty about it. That's that's a big that's a big part of his movies. Yeah, he certainly puts people doing bad things into his stories, or he decides to adapt stories where people are already doing that. And it's just gotten more and more intense. Like if you go back to drive. Uh, I think maybe the worst thing we see happening in there is always, it's always connected to robberies. Right. Right. But then he, he gets kind of more into almost like a modern day slavery in a lot of the other, that, that element is always there in a lot of the stories that he tells afterwards. And yeah, I've heard other people make that comment too, that like, it, it might be better for him to use his gifts to tell other people's stories in his very unique way, but that coming up with the stories themselves is just maybe not what he's good at and maybe just not what he's really interested in. Yeah, he, he is gifted at, at making things look pretty. There's no doubt. But yeah, I think when he writes stuff on his own, it's a lot weaker. Now, I really like Too Old to Die Young because I love Ed Brubaker. Everybody knows that. And he's a brilliant crime writer. It's gory at times. It's very visceral, everything that you watch. Um, the characters in it are like sometimes compelling, but it's interesting that his protagonists generally aren't. They're just kind of these cold shells, like especially in Too Old to Die Young, like Martin Jones, the main cop played by Miles Teller, like he's a sociopath. Like he doesn't really know how to have feelings and he doesn't. He just walks through this world and ends up doing things for seemingly the right reasons but we really don't know if they're correct or not like he is the ultimate hypocrite he is a pedophile vigilante who is a pedophile himself yeah he, and and they have him do this i don't know if it was his acting choice or if maybe he was directed to do this but at least once an episode when you're looking at him sort of cold and emotionless while he's experiencing something that would be pretty intense for most people to experience. He'll just spit. Yeah. And it's almost like they needed him to have some idiosyncrasy or some quirk because he's a, when he spits on the ground or on the floor, he's expressing some kind of emotion, but I'll be darned if I know what it is because <laughs> it's just, it, it, there's just nothing there. Just this kind of blankness. 
Well, um, also for someone who spits so much, he's not very good at it. You know, like, like when you meet somebody who spits, which is disgusting, but when you do, you can tell that they've done that kind of all their life. Like, man, like they could hit a bullseye and this guy just has sort of spray that goes everywhere. Yeah, I, I, I always remember uh, in in um, in the, the Stephen King novella, The Body, uh, the character that would eventually become River Phoenix in, um, oh, help me out here. Uh, Stand By Me. Stand, Stand By Me. They didn't do this in the movie, but in the novella, he would always make a ring with his thumb and his index finger and hold it at arm's length and spit through it. And, and that that that's the kind of maybe it's a regional thing, but those are the kind of spitters we grew up with. Miles Teller just kind of it's like it's like more of a it's more of a pellet gun or shotgun kind of kind of a yeah yeah. Anyways, okay, back on track. What I do want to say about Too Old to Die Young, but is is interesting is that plot wise, it sort of takes place in the United States and in Mexico. So you have like the police, and then you have this other plot line with the cartel, and they do overlap. But we watched most of this in Mexico with no subtitles. So a lot of the time you're kind of figuring out what's going on. It's a good pop quiz for your language lessons. But uh, we we watched it with no side of subtitles. And I don't know if there are subtitles with the original. There are. We w- The first time we watched it back in 2015 or 16 or maybe even 17 when it first came out. 2019 Um, it's not oh wow okay I I forgot a lot of it quickly then we did watch it with subtitles but what also is interesting about this is that like there's this whole tarot thing like under the surface which I think bears a lot more exploration and I'm not going to do it here Uh, but it's really cool and then the other big part of it that I think is interesting is that like there are so many mama issues in this show like every character has mother issues and most of the time that either translates to something along the lines of psycho which this has as well but it has a lot of other levels to it Um, and most of the time it's daddy issues so it's kind of neat to see mama issues and there's two women characters in this show uh Yaritza Rojas uh, played by Christina Rodlow and then Diana Sophia de Young by Jenna Malone. And uh, yeah, they're kind of like the queens. If you look at this as a chess match almost, they are the the black and the white queen who get their little pawns doing all kinds of things. Yeah, and that theme is just getting heavier and heavier in, in Copenhagen Cowboy. The, the, the character who I believe to be the title character, who I, I guess it's okay to say is a vampire, has serious parental issues and is definitely the product of legacy Mm. and yeah this this edible stuff that refin sort of started to dabble with in only god forgives it's it's just gotten more and more intense okay is there any of the like Towards the end of Too Old to Die Young, it turned more and more into like Twin Peaks, The Return, where you have these like weird little beings that are kind of like under the surface of the energy of the world telling people what to do. Is there any of that in Copenhagen Cowboy? There is. Yeah, there is. And and that part of the show is really cool. Going back to comic books, it it the the ending of it promise no spoilers here it does sort of have the feeling of the way that the marvel 
comic books in the 70s and 80s used to end like okay. it like it really feels like it's setting the table for another six episodes but as i started off by saying like netflix seems to have like sort of treated this like a, a piece of excrement that needs to bury in the yard I don't know if we're ever going to get to see season two of Copenhagen Cowboy or, you know, maybe season two will be a movie that maybe maybe plays on another streamer. I don't know how that's going to work, but it it does sort of feel like he has more to say. Okay. So here's hoping I, I in case you can't tell from how I'm talking about it, I really enjoyed watching it. The style over substance thing didn't bother me because that's kind of what I came in expecting and I felt like there was just enough substance to keep it interesting, but like no more than you would find in a 20 page comic book. Okay. Well, I can't wait to watch it. Sure. Well, we're going to throw things over to Hank and Craig and find out what they're watching this week and talking about and reading. And, uh, and then we'll see what Brennan's up to. So take it away, fellas. Hey everybody, Craig Silifan here on Punch Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM. And uh, normally I'd be joined by my co-pilot, Hank Cruz, but he had a last-minute emergency. So we were going to talk about uh, The Last of Us and some other stuff, uh, but we'll have to save that for next week. Instead, I thought I would go through my top 10 films of 2022, which you can also uh, read in full at thefeedbacksociety.com. You can also read number 11 to 20. 26 at thefeedbacksociety.com. There's also a couple of other uh, interesting end-of-year best-ofs up there. Uh, You can see Richard Gary's yearly list of DIY horror movies, so sort of micro-budget horror movies. And you can also read uh, one of our many music experts and fellow puncher, Dave Scadden, write about his top 20 albums of 2022, and that's all at thefeedbacksociety.com. But uh, top 10 movies of 2022, so we don't always get everything right away. So I think I've seen most of the stuff that would be in contention this year, but there's a few movies I either haven't had a chance to get down to the theater and see, like the 17-hour-long Babylon or, uh, you know, other things that just haven't hit here yet. But these are the things that I was able to see. Number 10, Vortex, French provocateur Gaspar Noé. Uh, his his movie Climax, I think, was one of the best films of the 21st century. Uh, Vortex is the follow-up, and it's a different kind of Noé movie. Instead of focusing on insane visuals and pointy-stick storytelling, the visceral horror here is about human aging. The film follows an elderly couple. The wife is stricken with dementia. Now, Noah is still forcing us to look at something uncomfortable, but it's infinitely more relatable than what he's usually concerned with. Uh, I would definitely not call this a good time at the movies, but it's doing what cinema should be doing, immersing you fully in a world so you care about the people that inhabit it making you think about things bigger than yourself making you feel something so it's no fun but it's necessary uh, everything everywhere all at once is number nine and it's been really fun seeing Kei Kwan you know on the awards circuit uh, but it was one of the biggest success stories of the year from A24 the little movie that could uh, I say little movie but it was maximalist fare with everything but the kitchen sink jammed into it and I'm pretty sure I actually did see the kitchen sink flying around in there too so it's not perfect it's a little long and sometimes you get lost in the murk uh, and it isn't necessarily for everybody I've heard a few people tell me it was just too much for them but I thought it was pretty amazing there's plenty of laughs lots of 
to heart. Surprises around every corner. I think it was the real multiverse of madness of 2022. Uh, Michelle Yeoh is great in it. Jamie Lee Curtis has a small but important role. And as I said, it's awesome seeing Kehi Kwan again. Number eight, The Quiet Girl. This actually was one that was recommended to me by Hank, uh, as well as British critic Mark Kermode. Uh, It's a little Irish film about a nine-year-old girl who's sent away from her family to live with a distant cousin. I saw several movies I would call humanist this year, and I think this one packed a pretty big wallop. While it's a very minimal and straightforward story, it sort of creeps in on you and you fall in love with the humanity of its characters. And by the end, uh, in a way that's very well-earned and not manipulative, you find yourself trying to hide the fact that you're bawling your eyes out. Number seven, Holy Spider. Uh, And I think uh, this is still playing at the Broadway Theater this week, so check that out. I could be wrong, but go check the Broadway Theater uh, site. It is a stunning film from Iranian filmmaker Ali Abbasi, who uh, also is actually directing two episodes of The Last of Us. Uh, But it's about a journalist in the holy city of Mashhad. She is investigating a serial killer called The Spider, who claims to be ridding the streets of sinners by murdering sex workers. The real terror set in for me when I realized it was actually based on a true story. So the first half of the movie reminded me of a Michael Mann film like Manhunter or perhaps Fincher's Zodiac. The second half kind of spins into a law and order territory uh, in a good way. Uh, It's been controversial because of its jarring violence in certain scenes. Uh, Some are calling it exploitive. I won't say that it's not exploitive. I think anything like this could rightly be called that. But the film's got a strong message about misogyny in that place and time, especially when many of the community rallied behind the actual killer, both in the film and in real life. Uh, I'd argue that sanitizing these shocking acts would take away some of their power to bring us to rage or over the crimes and the attitude that follows. So, you know, the violence may not be necessary to get that point across, but it definitely makes a viewer sit through something that real women went through, or at least a a modicum of what real women went through, uh, and the ending is downright bone-chilling. Number six... Tar. Kate Blanchett hands in a career-making performance, uh, well, somewhere in the middle of a career full of excellent performances, playing a controversial conductor whose hubris is bringing her downfall. It works at its own pace, which is a nice way of saying it's over two and a half hours and it doesn't mind taking its time getting where it's going. While one could argue the same story could be told in less than two hours, I think the film does a good job of enveloping you in its world and very little feels uh, superfluous. Uh, It has things to say about cancel culture and white male canons of art, but it doesn't try to shove an opinion down your throat either way. In a world where both sides of the political spectrum around identity politics and other topics often want to view everything as black and white, Tar shows us the gray area in between where real people live. It's never too on the nose. In fact, sometimes you're piecing things together when it doesn't show you all its cards. Uh, After watching it, I recognized how brilliant it was, but I also felt like it was holding me at a distance. But I have to say the movie kept rolling around in my head after, nagging at me, making me want to see it again now that I know where the story goes, to revel in some of its sumptuous design and character details. So I I'd say that's a win. Number five, After Sun, which again, uh, check the Broadway theater listings because I think it might still be playing there this week, but uh, don't quote me on that. Another A24 release about a daughter remembering a vacation she took with her father. It's so low-key that I honestly kept expecting the other shoe to drop uh, for it to explode into violence or something. That doesn't happen, and I think that expectation was more on me than the film itself. It's always engaging, but sometimes it feels like not much is happening. However, by the end, it's clear that so many things are happening. 
bubbling below the surface, both for the characters and for the film itself. So it all comes together to paint a lovely but melancholy portrait of not only the father-daughter relationship, but I think also some of the struggles that we carry with us and the pain we see others carrying in quiet desperation. So another real humanist masterpiece for 2022. Number four, Top Gun Maverick. It ain't all about art films and pretension. Sometimes it's Tom Cruise, fighter jets, and box office. I am an unapologetic fan of the 1986 movie. I mean, I was in grade six when it came out, so I was right in the pocket. Very quotable movie. Sure, Maverick feels like a Force Awakens reboot slash sequel that hits all the same beats as the first movie, but it's big, fun escapism that takes you to a state of mind where you don't have to think about pandemics and inflation and even real wars. Tom Cruise wins the year as the man who almost made us forget about his weird cult, thinking of him instead as the aging dogfighter who's just trying to save the movies. Number three, The Batman. Most of the films on this list are here for their filmmaking merit. Uh, While this is exceptionally well made, it's only ranking high because it's my most personal entry on the list. Like many, I've been a fan of the Batman since I was a kid, so you could just keep making new Batman movies every year as far as I'm concerned, as long as you keep Joel Schumacher away from Gotham. Is this the best Batman movie? No. However, it felt to me like the Batman film that was most like reading a several-issue arc of the comic book. It's one of the only three-hour movies I've seen recently that I felt justified its length, though your mileage may vary depending on how much you love living in the world of the Dark Knight detective. Number two, Triangle of Sadness. Ruben Ostland is easily one of the most unique filmmakers out there right now in a class with the best that international film has to offer. Triangle of Sadness starts out with a fashion model and his influencer girlfriend joining a cruise for the ultra-rich, and from there it just gets bonkers. Not everything works, but it takes so many fun twists and turns while it skewers class and rolls around in Ostland's trademark socially awkward paradigms. Triangle of Sadness actually won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year, uh, and in fact 2017's Ruben Ostland film The Square also won the Top Can Award, uh, and his hilarious masterpiece, Force Majeure, took home the jury prize, Un Certain Regard Sidebar, uh, in the year that it came out. And if you haven't seen that movie, you should really go see it, Force Majeure. Uh, So anyway, Triangle of Sadness probably is not for everyone, but if you're into this kind of thing, you'll go bananas for it. And the number one film uh, this year that I saw, I think, was The Whale. So several reoccurring themes on this list collide with The Whale. It's an extremely humanist film, but it's also courted controversy. Uh, I liked early Darren Aronofsky films, but he hasn't done much for me since maybe The Wrestler in 2008. Uh, A lot of people criticize his visceral approach with The Whale, and I think that like Gaspar Noé this year, it was toned down by quite a bit in comparison to his previous work. Uh, You know, it's as subtle as you're going to get from him anyway. Brendan Fraser uh, plays a 600-pound man who doesn't leave his apartment. In fact, this film was adapted from a play, and it feels quite claustrophobic. Even the aspect ratio is only 4 by 3 He teaches an online course but leaves his camera off so his students can't see him. He tries to reconnect with a daughter who hates him. Uh, You've heard the accolades for Frazier already, but I say just bring a dump truck of Oscars and leave them on his lawn. His performance is powerful, optimistic, and heartbreaking. I should say, of course, there were controversies with this movie. I'm running out of time to go into them. You can read my uh, review at thefeedbacksociety.com. And I will say, too, there's some flaws with the movie. I think there's plenty of reasonable reasons not to like the film. Uh, It's claustrophobic. It's it's maudlin. It's miserablest. But I think you need to see the depth of that sadness. 
sadness to let the film's optimism fully spread its wings. And I think reasonable people can still disagree about uh, things without calling for art to be burnt on a pyre. So it's a controversial film, and we'll see if I'm still proud to hang my number one on in six months. But I can say without hesitation, it was the most emotional time I spent at the movies this year. Uh, I walked out feeling like I'd seen into the soul of humanity, and in a year with more than one movie that moved my cynical Gen X heart to tears, this one had the most boxes of Kleenex needed to sop up the mess. And I hope that Frasier is well rewarded at awards time. So that's my time. I got to throw back to Jody here. You're listening to Punch Radio on CFCR 90.5 FM. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to hear from Brennan for a few minutes. Thank you, Jody. This is Brennan here, and I'm back with some more suggestions of things that you need to go check out right now. Today, I'm going to focus primarily on comics. Specifically, I'm going to focus on three comics that have just come out recently. So either it's a number one, a number two, or a number three. And I just realized I'm actually giving you a number one number two, and a number three. So it's not too late. If you haven't caught onto these books yet, you still have time to go get them. At your local shop, they're on the shelves. The first one I want to talk about is Vampirilla versus Red Sonja. Okay, yes, I've talked about Vampirilla quite a bit on the show. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And I even talked about Vampirilla number one when it first came out. Vampirilla versus Red Sonja is such a fun read right now. I really enjoy it when they take a character out of its element. So we have this horror character and this fantasy character basically helping to fight for this multiverse. So this is written by Dave Abnett with artist Alessandro Renolati and colorist Ellie Wright. Dan Abnett does a wonderful job of taking a canon character and, and turning it on his head. He did the Vampirilla Dark Powers and the Vampirilla Superpower Project and it was so much fun and now they're combined. So we're on Earth Projection 633, and there's this apocalyptic force that is there. Red Sonja has recruited her superhero, her superpower team to go down and defeat this force. Vampirilla is discussing with her dark power team, saying she doesn't know what she's doing. I know what to do. We should go down there and help and try to figure out what to do. But, of course, the project, the one who's in charge of this whole thing, um, has other things to say. The art is dynamic. It's really fun. Uh, it's bright and fast. Uh, manga kind of style to it. It reminds me a lot of uh, Peach Momoko. A lot of different perspectives. It's nice and bright. Anyway, so much fun. Check out Vampirilla versus Red Sonja. My next one is the number one, Joe Fixit. That's right. Back in the 90s, for a while, the Hulk was a gangster by the name of Joe Fixit. One of the first times I remember as a young reader seeing the Hulk being in control, afraid that Bruce Banner might end up taking control. Joe Fixit is suave, he can talk, he's big and powerful, and it was one of the first times you could see what the Hulk would be like if he was an actual functional human being. In this one, he is uh, working for Mr. Berengetti, a big gangster, he's the enforcer, and he's beginning to make a name for himself. This new Joe Fixit number one corresponds with The Incredible Hulk number 349. So that was the issue back in the 90s when Spider-Man met Mr. Fixit for the first time. Peter Parker is about to go home. He's like, okay, you know what? I ran to the Hulk. I don't know why anyone else doesn't recognize him as being the Hulk. Whatever, I'm going home. He's in the airport and guess who walks in? The Kingpin. That's right, the Kingpin is in Vegas to do business. And Spider-Man wants to go figure out what's going on. Um, it's, the, the art is so clean. Uh, Peter David actually created Mr. Fixit. I didn't realize that. And is now carrying on the story. It's so nostalgic. It reminds me of a book that I would have read, but with glossier paper. So much good. So fun. Check out Mr. Fixit number one. And my top pick 
which I actually put in my top 10 of comics, even though I hadn't read it yet. Danger Street. That's right, Danger Street. The Tom King, Jorge Fornes book. Um, man, Tom King is doing what he does best. He's taking a bunch of characters you haven't thought about and turning everything on its head. When I opened up issue number one, I was delighted to see paper. Like, not glossy paper, but like actual real paper. This looks exactly like uh, a Virgo comic back in the 90s. Uh, it has that style. I feel like I'm reading James Robinson Starman for the first time. So we have these oddball group of characters. Uh, the Creeper is in here, and they're all trying to find Darkseid. Things go wrong. Oh, man, like so much happens in these two issues that I don't, I, I don't want to say anything because I want you to see it. But in issue two, something happens with Darkseid that I'd never, ever, never thought I'd see before. Possibly it's happened somewhere in a comic, but knowing Tom King and how he likes to bring out details of things that haven't happened before, he pulls a move I've never seen before and never expected from Darkseid. Oh, so good. I'm so glad I put it as my top three without reading it because now that I've read it, man, this one is in competition for number one. Have a great week of reading. I'll chat with you next time. And that wraps up our episode of Punch Radio. So thanks for tuning in. You know where to find us here every Friday on CFCR 90.5 FM. In the meantime, keep your dukes up.